Okay, I invite you to kneel with me this time. Let's, let's have a word of prayer together. Our most loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you on bended knee and praise you uh, for your love and your kindness and and uh, for your patience with us. And uh, Lord, for providing for our necessities. Uh, sometimes we have different ideas of what they may be, but you provide the things that we need that sustain us, uh, Lord, uh, so that we may be a happy people. And... Uh, uh, you sustain us with the things and furnish the things we need to share uh, the love of Jesus with others. And we praise you for that. We thank you for the Sabbath day. Uh, to think that you created today specifically to be uh, with your creative beings is a remarkable thought. And we invite you here. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be very present and uh, angels from heaven so that we may get a taste of heaven realizing that we will be keeping this day throughout all eternity. What a joyous thought. Father, we come before You and thank You for Jesus who loves us so much that He gave up all heaven become like one of us to show us a, the true way to live a righteous life and uh, to take our sins upon Himself and die a death that we deserve because of our choices. But we praise Him that He never sinned. The grave couldn't hold Him. And He is resurrected. And we have the blessed hope of, of having eternal life and seeing Him again. And Lord, we see the signs of the times that Jesus spoke of and we know that that coming is very soon. And we wish to be prepared and, and Lord, to prepare others as well. So that not any one of our family members, our friends, or loved ones that will not be there. Lord, we praise You for uh, sustaining us and for being with us as a, a people uh, and uh, uh, helping us uh, to have the freedoms that we have at this time to worship You in spirit and in truth to come together. We also, Lord, uh, we pray for those who aren't with us. We pray for those who are studying, uh, those who may be discouraged, Lord. Uh, help us to encourage them to keep looking up. And Lord, we, we have those on our prayer lists. We pray that you'll be very near to each one of them. I'll be with Andrea and Brandon. Help them to, to have healing and uh, uh, be able to give you praises, Lord, uh, for touching them with your healing hand, the great physician. Lord, I pray now that you give me the words to speak. Uh, may they be your words. Uh, may they touch hearts with the truth and uh, be an encouragement to to all around and to uplift the discouraged and the disheartened and turn their eyes toward home and toward Jesus. Lord, above all, pray that you will forgive each one of us our sins so that our names may remain written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Lord, I thank you for hearing this prayer as it is asked in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, 
I've entitled this uh, message, The Negative Waivers. Negative Waivers. You know, some people see the glass. Here, let me show you here. Not quite half, is it? Some people see the glass as half empty, don't they? And others, though, they see the glass as half full, although this glass isn't quite half. But you get my point, right? Have you heard that before? Of course, I think, you know, I've said it before, but I'm sure you've heard it before. What is it that causes the difference in their perspective? I don't have to answer me. Just think about the, the question. Some people, at least in my experience, uh, and that's getting, they're getting fewer to find, <laughs> um, they always see the good in life and they always see the good in others. Have you ever met anyone like that? These people, they, they bring a positive feeling to most uh, all of the people that are around them. They like brighten a room. They look for the silver lining, it seems like, in every situation. It doesn't matter how bad the situation may be. They're always an encouragement. Then there are those who always seem to see the bad in everything. And it seems like they are surrounded by negative waves. And they want everyone else to share in those negative waves. You know the old saying, misery loves company, right? These dispositions can usually be traced back to one's early life experiences, usually. Uh, one's environment also has a, uh, a great influence upon a, a person's outlook. I've noticed uh, that most of the people who are very positive are those who care, it seems, more for others than they do themselves. While the negative waivers, that's what I call them, the negative waivers are mostly concerned with themselves. How bad it is for me. You know. Boy, you know that would happen to me. You know, everything is self-centered with the negative waivers. Do you think Jesus was onto something when he said it was better to give than to receive? <laughs> Shouldn't we, as followers of Jesus, be a positive influence to all the people around us? Sometimes it just takes a smile. You know? I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? Wasn't He a positive influence to those around? In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Paul says, this is very familiar Scripture, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, what's He say? Do it all to the glory of God. Do it all. Whatever it is you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. I mean, it's true that as Christians, especially in today's world, we have a tough mission field. But the gospel means what? Good news. Isn't that what gospel means? You heard that before? It means good news. And our disposition, our disposition, the way we act, the way we behave, tells others whether we believe it's really good news or not. Whether we say anything or not. 
we studied this morning, the Apostle Paul was an encouragement to those around him just because of his life. Jesus was an encouragement to those around him just because of his life. You don't have to say a word to be a negative waiver. We see one example of a negative waiver in King Saul. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We read here in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Samuel had died. Uh, He'd been buried. Of course, who was Samuel? Who can tell me who was Samuel? Prophet. He was a prophet of the Lord, wasn't he? And uh, he had died. He'd been buried. And now the Philistines had come uh, up to attack Israel. And in 1 Samuel 28, look at verse 5. It says, And when Saul, Saul, S-A-U-L, when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was overjoyed. He leaped for joy. He's such a positive influence. But what's it say? He was afraid. Is that what it said? He was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. He was terrified, is what's being said here. Now, I want to tell you something, beloved. Fear is part of the devil's program. And like I mentioned earlier uh, this morning, the devil has three ways primarily to try and destroy you. Three ways. First, he wants to seduce you through sensual temptations. Okay? If that doesn't work, then he reverts to deception to involve you in his counterfeit for faith. What's the counterfeit of faith? Many religions today have this counterfeit. It's called presumption. He tries to get us into presumption. And if these two attempts don't succeed, his third method is to endeavor to uh, uh, terrify you. That's where coercion can be you know, used. You're terrified. Interestingly, this is the exact order that the devil followed when trying to tempt Christ there in the wilderness. First, he tried to seduce him with a sensual temptation through the appetites. Appetite isn't just what you put in your mouth. You can have an appetite for many different lusts. Then he tried to get him to practice presumption. And he finally tried to terrify him by implying that he need not go through the suffering of the cross. In other words, he said, I'll give you the whole world if you just bow down and worship me. You won't have to go through any of that. Suffering, of course, is something that terrifies people. We have a vivid imagination, don't we? As human beings. And sometimes that's not good for us. <laughs> but the devil, he tried this on Jesus to no avail. However, sad to say, he is more successful when it comes to us. Let's go back to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 28, verse 5, it said that Saul was terrified. Look at verse 6. Says Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. 
Now, there were three primary methods to get an answer from the Lord, and we're told that Saul used all three to no avail. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 675, talking about this, it says, The Lord never turned away a soul that came to Him in sincerity and humility. Why did He turn Saul away unanswered? The king had by his own act forfeited the benefits of all the methods of inquiring of God. He had rejected the counsel of Samuel the prophet. Remember when Samuel was alive, he was trying to counsel Saul continuously and Saul kept rejecting him and rejecting him. Well, when you reject a prophet of the Lord, who are you really rejecting, Kayla? The Lord, right? He had exiled David, she says, the chosen of God. He had slain the priests of the Lord. Could he expect to be answered by God when he had cut off the channels of communication that heaven had ordained? Isn't that just like us? We we always blame God or somebody else, don't we? I'm going to talk to, about that this morning. Not always, but we tend to. Well, it's not my fault. You know, why isn't the Lord answering me? <laughs> Let's see. You killed his priests. You know, you exiled the chosen one that uh, was to take your place. Yeah. You know. He had sinned away, the speaking of Saul, he had sinned away the spirit of grace, and could he be answered by dreams and revelations from the Lord? Saul did not turn to God with humility and repentance. He was it was not pardon for sin and reconciliation with God that he sought, but deliverance from his foes. You see, what had happened was Saul had become just like his enemy, the Philistines. You know, the Philistines, they they drug around this idol, Dagon. They take him into battle and, you know, they worship this this false idol. And the, the Israelites, being surrounded by that paganism and heathenism, were influenced by it and that idolatry to a point that they thought, well, all we have to do is carry around the Ark of the Covenant and it will give us victory. See? The Creator God is not in a box, friends. (laughs) You can't put Him in a box. Just pull Him off the shelf whenever you want and put Him back. He's not Dagon. He's not Molech. He's not Baal. It's not these false gods. He's the creator God. The one who speaks and universes come into existence. How do you put that in a box? But Saul had become just like his enemy. He thought, why isn't God answering me? I'll pull this box out and he... You know, I need deliverance here. I need victory. Saul's terrified. By the way, did you notice in verse 6 there it said... He inquired of the Lord, the Lord Lord answered him not, neither by dreams. We understand that, don't we? Prophets had dreams. Kings sometimes had dreams. David had dreams. Nor by Urim. You guys know what that is. Nor by prophets. We understand what prophets are. But Urim. 
Isn't that rather interesting? Hmm? This was one of two stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest. He had a breastplate and there were 12 stones representing the, the tribes of Israel. And then on each side was two other stones. The Thurman and the Urim. That's what they were. Type of stones. Let me read this to you. Again, it's from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 351. It says, At the right and left of the breastplate were two large stones of great brilliancy. These were known as the Urim and Thummim. But by them, the will of God was made known through the high priest. When questions were brought for decision before the Lord, a halo of light encircling the precious stone at the right was a token of the divine consent or approval, while a cloud shadowing the stone at the left was an evidence of denial or disapprobation. So if you had questions, you, you know, serious questions that affected God's people, you could go to the high priest and inquire of the Lord and he would go in to the Lord and he would pray and have his censor and, and bring it before the Lord and the Lord would answer by either glowing the one or shadowing the other. I will tell you that 99% of Christianity has no clue about that because they don't study the Word of God. So when they read 1 Samuel 25 and they go, by Urim, what is that? You know? God has many ways of communication with us. And in fact, there's a sermon uh, in and of itself there that I, I may get to one of these days, considering these stones. But here we are. God would not answer him. So what happens? Saul becomes desperate. Unfortunately, there are many Christians today there are many in the Advent movement today who are desperate and want to know the answers to certain questions and God hasn't answered them. And so they do as Saul did. You know, it was one of the devil's masterful temptations, I guess, you could say, to get men to ask questions that God would not answer. I mean, it's been that way through the eternal ages. That's what, what Lucifer did in heaven. From the book, The Great Controversy, page 523, notice. It says, It is a masterpiece of Satan's deceptions to keep the minds of men searching and conjecturing in regard to that which God has not made known and which He does not intend that we shall understand. It was thus that Lucifer lost his place in heaven. He became dissatisfied because all the secrets of God's purposes were not confided to him, and he entirely disregarded that which was revealed concerning his own work in the lofty position assigned by him. He wasn't satisfied with where he was, where God wanted him. He wanted answers. In other words, he wanted to be God. Man wants to be God, has that same spirit. Spirit of Antichrist. She says, by arousing the same discontent in the angels under his command, he caused their fall. Now he seeks to imbue the minds of men with the same spirit and to lead them also to disregard the direct commands of God. 
There are some things we, we just need to get it settled. There are some things we will never know the answer to. They belong to God. And it's up to God, the Creator of all things, whether He's going to reveal something or not. It's His prerogative, not ours. We're created beings. <laughs> People get so desperate to know the, the answer to a certain question that God hasn't revealed that they try to find out the answer somewhere else. And that's precisely what Saul decided to do. God's not going to answer me. I'm going to get an answer from somebody. Look at verses 7 and 8. Uh, 1 Samuel 28. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. He asked this witch to to bring up Samuel. Now isn't that rather ridiculous? Samuel had been there while he was alive to give him counsel. (laughs) Now he's dead and he wants this witch to conjure up this spirit Samuel. And so she had a seance for him and uh, brought up Samuel. Of course, we realize the Bible teaches it was a demon. It wasn't really Samuel. When you you die, you're dead in the grave. But here, here's this demon speaking and looks just like Samuel. Let me tell you something. Devil's been around for thousands of years, hasn't he? And the fallen angels... Do you, do you think that they're very intelligent? Think they're more intelligent than intelligent than us? I would say so. They have a, a lot more powers than we do? I would say so. Do you think that they know our characteristics? The way we behave? Do they know the way we look? Do you think they could imitate us? Absolutely. This is what was happening here. So you have this demon spirit comes up and he... he I mean, we, we have comedians that do this for a living. <laughs> Imitate people. Right? It's not a far stretch to think, well, demons can do it. More powerful than we are. So here's this demon and he plays Samuel to a T. Samuel says, well, why would you bring me up? And Saul says, well, God doesn't answer me. I've asked Him. I've I've gone to Him all the ways that I know how. And I have to have this, this information. I have to have... I need to know these things. If you read verses 17, 18, 19, it says that Samuel, in effect, told him off. He told him, you haven't listened to God. You didn't do what he told you to do. And that's the reason he doesn't answer you, Saul. 
And not only that, the Lord has taken away the kingdom from you. He's going to give it to David. In fact, tomorrow the Lord is, is, uh, is going to give you all He's going to give you. He's going to give you and all the armies of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. That's what He's going to do, Saul. And you're going to die tomorrow, Saul. And your sons are going to, they're going to be with me in the grave. Now, that sounds like a negative waiver, doesn't it? <laughs> it was, a, of course, it was the devil speaking through, you know, his demons. The devil is, and let me tell you something, the devil and his agents are the source for the negative waves. It was not God's message. God's message is the message of the everlasting gospel and the judgment. You can read it in Revelation 14. God does say that if you will not listen to the warnings, there are going to be some terrible consequences. However, the three angels' messages open up by saying that the angel that flies in the midst of heaven has the everlasting gospel. And again, what does that word gospel mean? Good news is positive news, isn't it? God's message is a message of good news. And when we study with somebody, when we study the Bible with somebody, they ought to find out some good news. Don't you think? I mean, how often would you want to study the Bible if it was all just bad news? I don't know. About today's culture, they probably would. But the world has enough messages about hell and damnation and awful things and I think desperately needs good news. The good news, friends, is that Jesus is coming. And He's going to get you out of this place. And He's going to take you to a place where there's no more sickness, Josh. There's not going to be any war there. And there will not be any cemeteries either. That's good news, isn't it? There'll be no death. There'll be no more pain. It's going to be a wonderful place. Isn't that good news? Beloved, the Christian, I believe, is duty-bound before God to give the people of this world the good news. Good news of Jesus soon coming. And how to get ready for that. That's the reason we're here. And having the opportunity... To be saved from sin and the consequences of it is good news to hear. If you could go to the drunkard in the gutter and say, I have good news for you, there's a way that you can come out of that gutter. Don't you think that would be good news for them? Jesus can change your life positively. (laughs) Do you think people... Want to be saved from their sins? Sometimes, you know, sad to say, sometimes, uh, sometimes we we don't get desperate enough. I don't think we're pleased with where we are. We're indifferent. But there are thousands and millions of souls out there who are hurting. What if you were the only one that had good news to give?
Wouldn't it be rather selfish to just keep it to yourself? If you knew that that good news would ease the hurt, publicizing every awful thing that may happen will never win anybody to Christ, friends. Usually it'll only cause panic and terror. And the devil's already doing that. And he needs no help from us. Isn't that true? He's flooding the world with messages of doom and he wants you to be terrified so that you'll make irrational decisions. You'll do things that are rash and reckless. Satan and his demons fill the world with negative waves to cause fear and discouragement. In 1 Samuel 28, every specification, pay attention to that, every specification that the devil made came true. The devil can often accurately predict events that are going to happen in the near future because he has access to all kinds of information that we don't. (laughs) However, just because it turns out to be true doesn't mean that the message was from the Lord, does it? could be the devil trying to get you terrified so you go into a panic. Now what was the devil trying to do through Samuel here, this professed Samuel that was raised up? Well, he was trying to discourage Saul and bring everlasting ruin, which he succeeded in doing, didn't he? Do you know that Saul will not be in the kingdom of heaven? It says in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, it says, So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him, and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse." King Saul was the leader of Israel, wasn't he? Well, he was the leader of professed Israel. David was the true leader of Israel, wasn't he? But why was the devil doing this? What was this message to do? He wanted to discourage Saul. The problem was Saul believed it. Saul could have, before then, before he went to this witch, Saul could have repented He could have gone to the Lord, repented of his sins, and the Lord would have been more than willing to forgive Saul and give an Israel victory. But Saul says, the Lord doesn't answer me. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go directly again against the will of God. I'm going to look up a witch. I'm going to go to the demons. This is from the SDA Bible Commentary. It says, Saul knew that in his this last act of consulting the witch of Endor, he cut the last shred which held him to God. He knew that if he had not before willfully separated himself from God, this act sealed that separation. 
and made it final. He was the king of Israel. Sometimes God will be very merciful to us if we're, you know, we're one of the common people. <laughs> when you're called to leadership, you have more responsibility. You're held to a little bit higher account. One of the commandments of God at that time was you were not to suffer a witch to live because you're basically speaking to Satan. And what's the king of Israel do? He goes to a witch. By the way, you read there in First uh, Samuel 28, the witch knew this and understood it. She knew what the law was in Israel. Yeah. She thought, why, are you, why did you do this? She thought she was going to be killed. Saul said, don't worry about that. I'm not going to kill you. Friends, when you go, you put away and you, you disobey God. Continually disobey God. There comes a point where a line is drawn. comes a point where a line is drawn. A line was drawn for Saul. And he knew it, see. Yeah. God in His mercy may wink at our sins that we don't know about. That's still His prerogative. But He's such a loving God, He'll do that. He's a just God. Saul knew what he was doing. And as she says, this act sealed that separation between him and God and made it final. He had made an agreement with death and a covenant with hell. The cup of his iniquity was full. The message from Satan is laced with doom and gloom and negative waves in an effort to discourage and to cause ruin. That's what he wants. God's message is good news. Our message is the gospel, which is good news, and the good news is that Jesus is coming, right? Friends, if you're a Christian and you don't think that's good news, you better take a step back and go to the Lord and look at your spiritual life. <laughs> if people could just get a little idea who Jesus is, what He's like, and the fact that He's coming soon, I think that'd be the most exciting thing in the world. When Jesus came, He always brought peace and hope and joy, didn't He? Everywhere He went. Didn't the children flock to Him? They could see it. We often concentrate on how awful it will be for the wicked when Jesus comes and that they're going to be destroyed with everlasting flames of fire when He comes. But look at what happens to the righteous. We too often tend to look through the eyes of the negative waivers. <laughs> Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. When He shall come to be glorified 
in His saints. Beloved, when Jesus comes, He's going to be glorified and we're going to be astonished at how wonderful it is. In the Bible, it's called that blessed hope. If you're one of the saved, the coming of Jesus will be more exciting than any experience that you've ever had. If you accept Him as your Savior, He has the power to take away all the guilt of your sins and to deliver you from the power of sin in your life, to restore you, to sanctify you, make you ready for that coming. Is that good news? Notice this. This is, this is really nice. This is from The Desire of Ages, page 258. Every man, every person, is free to choose what power he will have to rule over him. None have fallen so low, none are so vile, but that they can find deliverance in Christ. Our message is to be a message of good news. We're not to be negative waivers. There will not be any doomsday for the righteous. That's only for the wicked. Those who have rejected the message of salvation that's been freely offered to all. And that rips your heart out. People don't see some of the things that you see. It's difficult. That's why we pray for the Holy Spirit. Because only God can change hearts. We're a tool in His hands. So the devil wants to seduce you. And if that doesn't succeed, then he wants to deceive you. And if that doesn't work, then he wants to terrify you. Now think about this for a moment from the devil's perspective. If you wanted to get somebody terrified, how would you do it? In today's world, it'd rather it'd be rather easy. You'd bombard them with negativity, negative waves all the time. Messages predicting doom and gloom, and that's precisely what's happening, isn't it? God's people are more bombarded with messages talking about doom and gloom now, I think, than ever. Evangelical preachers predicting Armageddon, political uh, political collapse, economic collapse, the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. 24-12, no matter where you go. Is it any wonder that you know people are are falling for more sensual things? They're trying to escape from all the negative waves and all the doom and gloom. But they're going to all the wrong places. They're doing all the wrong things. All it does is is shove them further and further into the negativity. The end of the world gains strength in all these predictions through publications and media. I get people today you know, in the work of the Lord. They're alarmed by the status of the stock market. Friends, I could care less about the stock market. I'm not in it. Don't care about it. 
This world is not my home. I don't care about that. God's given us a mission. That isn't the mission, the stock market. That's just a sign of the times. Do you know there have been many stock market crashes in the last 200 years? <laughs> stock market crashed over 10 times since the year 1900. When I was young, about 10 years old, it crashed. It lasted over a year. Yeah, thanks, honey. That was a long time ago, she said. Is that the, the 20s? No, yeah, thank you. Right. right. No, that wasn't 1929. No. People at present are scared to death of the current financial crisis, but the big question is, how do you react to the crisis we're in? That's the question Christians need to be considering. How do you react to all of it? My entire life we've had all kinds of predictions of doom and gloom. When I was born, we had a Roman Catholic president, John F. Kennedy. You know, when my mother was young, it was believed that a Roman Catholic would never be elected as president of the United States. Over 70% of the United States were Protestants. What's a Protestant? They are protesting the Catholic Church. Do you know that while he was president in 1961, the Supreme Court made a ruling that Sunday laws were constitutional? Show me that in the Constitution. I don't see it. Many Adventists believe the end was near then. They furthered the negative ways by, by showing the doom, but not the good news of Christ's coming. Yeah, what's that First Amendment say again? The prediction of something awful or the negative waves is not really the point. <laughs> but how do, you, how do you react to it? That's what matters. My lifetime is full of negative waves and the temptation to forego plans and flee because the Lord was coming. When I was a baby, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And for about three days, Americans were afraid that there was going to be a nuclear war. It was real. You young people, you don't know about the Cold War. When I was in high school, that was a threat, nuclear fallout and war. Starting to get maybe a little taste of that with Iran today and North Korea. Then there was the escalation of Vietnam. During that time, there was the breakdown of law and order in 67 and 68, a reaction so-called to the Vietnam War. Then in 1771, President Nixon took, took us off the gold standard. Boy, that created a bunch of interesting events that we're paying for today. High unemployment. Americans were trying to conserve oil. I remember actually being in a gas line when I first got my license. Jimmy Carter was president. Now you just got a pick of whatever station you want to go to and you usually pull right up and pump it in. Imagine waiting two hours to get gas. But that time though, back then, Americans were trying to conserve oil and people were afraid. And, and I read that the talk all over the Adventist community at that time, this is 70, 
3.74 was that Sunday laws would be passed to try to conserve oil by not allowing people to drive their cars on Sunday. In 78 and 79, there was an attack on the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon in which Muslim terrorists took U.S. citizens captive. September 11th wasn't the beginning of these things, friends. This has been going on for a while. But the thinking then was that Ronald Reagan, who's running for president, he's going to start Armageddon because he'll go in there and he'll clean house in the Middle East. And as soon as he was inaugurated, hostages were let go because they feared the same thing. Every few years, we see the negative waves reach like a critical mass, and then something happens. You know, many Adventists believe that the world was supposed to come to an end in 2007. There were ministers who I personally know and warned. I had warned them of their course. Who jumped on the idea that something terrible was going to happen in September of 2007. You remember that? Mm -hmm. That was going to usher in Sunday laws. The mark of the beast and all these predictions. Yet we're still here, aren't we? But the, the sensationalism, you know. The sensationalism, it, it sure helps the DVD and, and, and newsletter circulation, doesn't it? I used to get some of these things and I wrote to these, these brethren and said, I don't want to get your stuff anymore. It's the same thing. It's the devil. It's one thing to, to warn and show signs of the times, but you've got to back that up with the gospel. The good news. I'm not here to sell newsletters and magazines, friends. (laughs) Beloved, what effect do all these negative waves and prophets of doom and gloom have on God's people? Many of God's people become disheartened and discouraged. We shouldn't dwell on all the awful things that are going to happen at the end of the world. We are, like I said, to look to the signs of the times. But only in relation to the gospel and sharing it with others, the three angels' messages. That's a, those are the last messages the world is to receive before Jesus comes. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know some probably are thinking this. I'm not sanctioning a peace and safety message. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and what He's going to do for His people at the end of the world. Isn't that true? Keep our eyes upon Jesus. It's the devil's business to get God's people discouraged and the way He does it is by sending you a a constant barrage of negative waves and, and predictions of doom. That's what He did with Saul. the thing is, the doom either doesn't happen at all or it doesn't happen the way it was predicted. So there's another twist, a new date, uh, you know, put on it. It's spun. I see it all the time and even by Adventist ministers that you may know of. They're all negative waivers who are, they're using sensationalism 
as Paul said, to gain a following of those with itching ears. Our scripture reading was Isaiah 8, verse 22. And said, And they shall look unto the earth, and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Is that the kind of experience that you want as we approach the end of the world? Trouble, darkness, and anguish like King Saul? Isaiah prophesied 2,700 years ago that is what they're going to do. What we just read. He wrote that 2,700 years ago. Roughly. To be driven to darkness is the devil's program and unfortunately it's being very successful with God's people today. But this is what the Lord wants you to do. Isaiah 45.22 says, Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. You can't save yourself. But if you look to God, you'll be saved. The devil says look to the earth. Look at the distress. Look at the trouble. Look at the awful things going on. Listen to the negative waivers. If more time is spent by God's people reading about all the trouble that's predicted to come in the world than on reading their Bibles, is it any wonder that they're discouraged and depressed? <laughs> it's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. They look to the earth. There's trouble. There's darkness. There's anguish. And what happens? They're, dwe- they're driven away from the light to darkness. That's what Isaiah is saying. Many young people are disinterested because, I believe, they've heard so many failed predictions that they have no confidence in the message. Do you think the devil had something to do with that? Some young people become passive and careless. They've heard so many predictions of doom, they say, who cares? I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to live my life. Become passive, careless, indifferent. If somebody is continually given a barrage of bad news, of all the terrible things, and just stress that, and they can't do anything about it, the effect is that they become passive. They say, so what? And that's become a problem in our society today. Television, radio, the internet, constantly bombarding people with sensational news, most all of it bad. I'll challenge you. Watch the news every night for a week and tell me how many positive things are mentioned. You see, the more sensational the programs, the more audience they get. The more audience they have, the more advertisers they get, the more profits they make. It's the cycle. The result is that people are bombarded with with this stuff, so the reality loses its significance. And the end result is you have a population that consider that there's nothing they can do about it, and so... They're so passive that they 
They can even hear somebody being murdered outside their window and they don't do anything about it. Happens all the time today. We have a president who tramples the Constitution, yet no one holds him accountable. We're living in the most passive generation that's ever been. And and I think it's it's negatively affected our young people. I mean, it affects everybody. But the, the generation of young people don't care. Men are so scared with the situation in the world economically and politically that they have decided to find security and safety in caves or in the mountains. I know a couple of congregations who fled to the mountains five years ago. You believe that? Some people who are already living in country areas are getting out into the mountains in places so deserted, you know, you got to have a four-wheel drive to get there. And these places are usually, well, they're quite affordable because they're so isolated. But if everyone did buy a place, let's say, like I said, what if you were the only one that had the message of good news? And you went out and you hid in the mountains. Who's going to take that message to the world? Exactly. If you lived in the mountains of Colorado, most of the people live in the city of Denver in Colorado. Isn't that where you would concentrate your evangelistic effort? If you're going to get your message to California, where do you need to concentrate your efforts there? You need to concentrate your efforts in the large cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco. Right? That's where most of the population is. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to live in the middle of Los Angeles, but, (laughs) you know, we do need to be somewhere that we can be of use and work for the Lord. We have a message to give to the world and we have such a barrage of negative ways and self-made predictions of doom that hits God's people every direction, night and day, seven days a week, like you said, Josh, 24-7. People are so scared, they're so terrified that instead of getting the message to the world, they they don't even want books passed out, books like The Great Controversy because it might stir people up. People are scared want to protect themselves instead of getting the messages to the world. Like I said, if you think only of yourself, you're going to fall prey to the negative waves, friends. And that reminds me of that reminds me of the story of Elijah. I was thinking about this. First Kings chapter 19. God gave him a message too, didn't He? Elijah. And where did God find him? Where was Elijah at? He was in a cave. It's where a lot of Adventists are. In a cave. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? (laughs) And he said, I've been very... Very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
And then the Lord says again, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, don't misunderstand, friends. There's going to be a time to flee to the caves and the mountains. <laughs> but not until we've gotten the three angels' messages to the entire world. We have a work to do. Well, people forget that what caused the trouble in the first place was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to begin with. They took it to the world, and then is when everything got that uproar. Our question, I think, for the Lord is how do you want me to relate to getting your message to the world? If the Lord tells me to go to a cave and a mountain, that's where we go. Or if He says, go to this city, that's where you go. What do you want me to do? What's my part? You know, there's work for everybody in the family of God, isn't there? There's work for those who've retired. Some people think that when you retire, you quit working for the rest of your life. (laughs) My dad told me once that he was busier after he retired than he ever was while he was employed. (laughs) Did you know that God doesn't retire His people? God uses His servants as long as they live. He used the Apostle Paul. And some of the most powerful books in the New Testament were written when when he was in prison. Like the uh, letter to the Ephesians. Paul was in prison and God used him. Revelation was written by John. He was exiled on Patmos. And he was very, very old at the time. The Lord didn't say, well, you poor fellow, you reached 65, so you can't work for me anymore. <laughs> we gain our retirement when Jesus returns, friends. <laughs> if your brain works and you're alive, God can use you if you surrender yourself to Him. And you ask, Lord, do you, what do you want me to do? I want to tell you, beloved, we're not going to get out of this world until we take the last messages to the entire world. The sad part is, the sad part of it is that if you and I don't do it, God's going to have somebody do it. God can finish His work with heathen princes if He needs to. You see it throughout the Bible. When God's people refused to obey and do His will, there were heathen princes that did it. God doesn't need me and you. He doesn't need any of the churches to finish finish His work. He doesn't need any of us. We need Him. (laughs) We need to be involved in finishing His work because, you know, that's a part... That's a part of how God works. That's how we actually work out our own salvation. As Paul says, with fear and trembling. And if we don't do God's work, the Lord can do it with somebody else. Remember when um, when the priests came out 
and they were telling the disciples to quit get the children to quit crying out and and uh, what Jesus say he said if if they quit the stones will cry out that's the way God works if the rocks cry out the work's going to be finished I don't want the rocks crying out I want to be the one to help him finish the work. God's work will get finished all right, but then you and I will lose the blessing we should have had. I don't want that to happen. What about you? This is from a Review and Herald article, Losing Our First Love. It's the article. She says, If we are faithless, we shall lose the crown of life, and another will take it. For in the dropping out of the faithless, the, the places are supplied by the faithful. If we refuse to let our light shine for the Master, if we do not do the works of God, others will do that very work which we might have done and could have done, but refused to do. When we cease to fulfill our mission, when the candlestick refuses to reflect light, and the great truths committed to us individually in trust for the world are not given to them, then the candlestick will be removed. That's what happened with Saul. I want you to think about this question. Just think about it. Where is the safest place on earth that you can be? Just think about it. I read a co- about a couple one time who retired and they looked uh, they looked all over the whole world to try to find the best, safest, most secure, nicest place they could go to retire, and they found it. The place they chose that they thought would be the best place. No. The Falkland Islands. It's down around South uh, America. Islands there. They moved there in 1980. I remember this because I was in high school. In 1981, war broke out in the very place that they thought was the safest, most secure place in the whole world. You and I don't know what is safe, friends. We don't know what is safe. We look around. But I'll tell you, the safest place for you in the world is the place where God wants you to be. So, beloved, pay no heed to the negative waivers. I like that. Negative waivers. Pay attention to Jesus and abide in His love, for it is that love that will cast out all fear. It will cast out the negative waves because God is positive, uplifting, as the psalmist says in Psalms 91, because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high. Did you catch that? We set our love upon God. Therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. 
I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Friends, if God isn't positive, I don't know who is. Keep looking up to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for Your promises. We thank You so much that You are solid. We can fully trust and count on You. Father, we pray. Not only will You forgive us where we have failed, but You will encourage us Strengthen us to stand. Strengthen us to be at that place where you wish wish us each to be. The safest place on earth. May we be found faithful when Jesus returns. May we be found doing thy will. Lord, please be with our young people. Pull them out of, of their indifference and their passiveness to be a good workman for You. This world is not our home. We look for that better place that's coming. May we hasten it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.